So now Lyndon Johnson, who was Kennedy's rival and um, much more the old school um, Washington politician. He's a really tall guy from a not that wealthy background in Texas. And actually, after he graduated from college, he was a public school teacher. Um, and then he worked his way up through the political machine. And he was a good old boy. He was really good at drinking with the boys and making deals. He was called the master of the Senate because he figured out how to get stuff passed by making slightly corrupt deals here, by bullying people there. Um, and by the time he became president, he's probably the president with the most experience getting stuff through Congress. Um, and he's crude in some ways. There's a famous story about him eventually getting the Civil Rights Act passed by having calling someone into his office and he takes his penis out and puts it on the Oval Office desk and he says, my dick's really out on this one. It was like he would play mind games with people, oh you know? He, show, he had surgery at one point and people questioned whether he'd had surgery, so he like pulled his shirt up and like showed them the scars like while he was president. Um, he plays by his own rules um, and he is a fascinating case study in the contradictory elements of, of being president. Um, but first, he has to run for re-election. And um, there is huge outpouring of grief over Kennedy's assassination. He has this young wife, he has two little kids, um, and there's you know the funeral and everybody is watching. Um, Johnson gets sworn in on the plane coming back from Dallas. Um, and when he takes office, he moves to basically use the feeling that people had for Kennedy to pass the Civil Rights Act. Um, he says, this is what Kennedy wanted before he died, and now we got to do it for him. And, um, and then he uses his incredible powers to cajole people through the Senate, and he gets passed before his you know, short first term is done. Um, this legislation, which says that um, it is now illegal, not only for government, uh, as the 14th Amendment states and should have been enforced a long time ago, not only for government to be segregated, but also for um, businesses and um, restaurants and hotels. And of course, they use the Interstate Commerce Clause to explain this, to say that um, they have the constitutional power to do this, and there are those who uh, argue against it on constitutional grounds. They say the government shouldn't have the power to tell restaurants who they can and can't serve. Um, and there are certainly plenty of others who oppose it on racist grounds. Um, and there's a lot of crossover between those two groups. Um, and when Johnson is sitting there signing the Civil Rights Act into law, um, really an incredible moment, and it's 1964, um, which is, uh, you know, this is the year after the I Have a Dream speech and the, the March on Washington. Um, it's the year after that as he's signing it. It's, it's, it's 1964. It's 100 years since the end of the Civil War. And now they're finally telling the South white supremacy needs to stop. And FDR didn't do this because he could like, If you're a question earlier of, like, who's eventually going to have the guts to do this? Well, to some extent, it takes a Southerner. 
like Lyndon Johnson. But like FDR was seen as a traitor to his class, Johnson is seen as a traitor to the South. And when he signs the Civil Rights Act, he turns to the guy standing next to him and he says, in signing this, I'm delivering the South to the Republican Party for three generations. South, which was always known as the Solid South, which since Lincoln really had never supported any Republicans. Um, you know, sometimes they supported groups like the Dixiecrats, uh, who broke away from the Democratic Party. But there's no way we're going to support the party of Northern business who had prosecuted the Civil War. And yet, he's right, within two election cycles, uh, Richard Nixon will become a Republican president of the United States based mostly on support in the South, which is the backlash to the civil rights movement. However, that's four years from then. Immediately after signing the Civil Rights Act, Lyndon Johnson ends up in a campaign against a guy named Barry Goldwater, who is an extreme conservative, and openly says he's an extreme conservatism. His famous line is, um, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. And he was part of this resurgence of not Eisenhower Republicans, not even Nixon Republicans, really hard right Republicans, whose basis was they were anti-communist. And they were very, they wanted government to be made radically smaller. They really wanted to go back to sort of the Coolidge era in many ways. Or at the very least, they did not support this new expansion of government power. Because in addition to campaigning for the Civil Rights Act, um, Lyndon Johnson says his legacy is going to be what he calls the Great Society. And the Great Society is going to be a whole new set of government programs that's like the New Deal that will help bring people, and in particularly people of color, out of poverty. Um, and this includes um, Medicare, which helps old people um, get health care for the first time, Medicaid, which provides health care for, uh, for poor people, um, and just a whole bunch of government programs about housing and um, development. And Barry Goldwater runs against all of that. He opposed the Civil Rights Act, because not because he was a white supremacist, but because he um, believed that the government didn't have the power to do that. He gets creamed. It's a, it, Lyndon Johnson gets nicknamed Landslide Lyndon because he wins almost every single state. Um, and in part, he does it by scaring people that Barry Goldwater, by being so extreme, is going to take us into nuclear war. He, the first famous campaign advertisement comes from that campaign. It's called the Daisy Ad. And it's a little girl with a daisy, like, pulling these petals off of a flower, and then you just see a nuclear bomb go off. And, and it's like, vote for President Johnson. And everyone's like, holy sh**, we don't want kids to be nuked. <laughs> go vote for Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> yeah, that ad sure worked. Really worked. Really worked. So Barry Goldwater and people are like, glad we got rid of those super conservative people. We proved that that will never happen. Um, but to just like foreshadow, um, just eight years later, two elections later, Richard Nixon wins all but one state in the entire country. How do you go from Lyndon Johnson winning one of the biggest landslides in American history to Richard Nixon winning one of the biggest landslides in American history? Like, we're used in our modern era, like, big states don't flip. Like, we, like the map is always going to be fought over, like, Ohio and Pennsylvania. But this was, like, California flipped, Texas flipped, New York flipped. Like, all of these states switch. And so the question to ask during this time period is, what happens in the country that can take us from one extreme to another extreme so fast?
And the answer is two things. A huge backlash uh, against civil rights and a racial, basically low-level civil war that takes place over the next eight years in the country. And a huge um, conflict within the country over the Vietnam War. Is this the flip? This is the flip. Yeah. Yeah. The South is what flips. In general, the thing that stayed the same throughout all of American history is that Republicans are more of the party of business Mm -hmm. and Democrats are more of the party of the poor and the working class. Mm -hmm. But at some point, um, the split is like, will the white working class continue to support a party that is for poor people, but that includes black people? And as the country gets further from the Civil War, and, and this is really important, as television brings to the North what segregation actually looks like. Because what Martin Luther King was a genius at was at creating moments that would be captured on television. He's like a social media genius, <laughs> right? Like, Because literally, people in the North knew segregation was going on, but somehow they didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. in the same way until they were watching children be hit with fire hoses. Now, how do you get children to be hit with fire hoses? You know, you have to create a movement that gets these children in a city that is one of the most racist cities and has a um, sheriff. You have to find a city that is run by some of the most racist and a particular form of racist person who will not recognize the fact that when cameras are running, you shouldn't do that. The strategy of MLK is not to, through nonviolence, change the minds of Southern white people so that they see that they've been wrong. The strategy of MLK, like it was for Gandhi, is to use acts of dramatic political theater to show to a group of people far away what is wrong with the system that they're tacitly supporting. The system that has people like Dwight Eisenhower and later John F. Kennedy who say, well, we're against racism but aren't willing to take action, start to have the support of some of their voters to take that action. You know? And, and it's, it's, it's the efforts of people in the civil rights movement that starts to convince some northern white people that they are in favor of passing laws that will force the South Mm -hmm. to change. Johnson passing the Civil Rights Act in JFK's memory, was it also a thing he had really wanted the whole time? Yes. Okay, it must have been. Johnson himself uh, uh, had had grown up with and spent a lot of time with black people in Texas and was was a a lifelong anti-racist in his own way. Although... He always felt that Martin Luther King was pushing for too much too fast. And he tried, as did Kennedy. And they would meet with MLK and they would say, you need to stop doing this. But basically, you know, MLK felt that he, he was forcing white people like Johnson, who might want to take action but would want to slow it down and do it piece by piece, like making them have feel pressure. So there's huge backlashes to the Civil Rights Act. Um, and there... There also is a feeling that like these laws are passed, and then he in 1965 he also passes the Voting Rights Act, which um, tries to dismantle the systems that keep black people from voting in the South. Um, 
um, there's really serious racial tension in the country after after these laws are passed, and of course before, um, that boils over in a couple of summers during um, Johnson's presidency where there are major racial riots, basically brought on by incidents between white and black individuals that turn into these huge burning and looting and um, fighting um, outbreaks. And of course, this is all in the context that of this huge movement of black people from the South to the North that hap- that started during World War I and um, continued through World War II and really takes off you know, right around the 50s and 60s, where even though, you know, Jim Crow is being dismantled, this feeling of like momentum and of like, we're just not going to put up with this anymore, um, as well as like jobs in these new factories and things that are being built up post-war leads to the largest migration in the history of the United States, the Great Migration. So cities in the North become filled with migrants from the South who are poor and black and, um, you know, expect better treatment than they receive. And in fact, it is cities in the North that end up being some of the most racist places um, in this time period. After the Civil Rights Act is passed in 1965, Martin Luther King's first move is to go to Chicago. And the Chicago campaign was aimed at trying to integrate housing because even as like laws like you know Jim Crow that keep people in separate parts of the bus are able to be dismantled, there's still these more insidious forms of discrimination like racial covenants which are put into um, people's mortgages where you can't... Um, or people's deeds on their houses, where it's like you can't sell this house to black people. Or just the social pressure that if you sell your house to a black person, all the white people move out. Um, And MLK goes to Chicago and people throw stuff at him and are screaming the N-word at him. And he says, and he really means it, that the racism he faced in Chicago was the worst racism he'd seen. Because in some ways it was this re- it was this really reactionary racism, because there was a sense in the North that was like, wait a minute, this isn't how we're supposed to live. Maybe that's how it goes in the South. You have to deal with this problem. And this is what like Southern racists mean when they would say to the North, like, hey, you you say you're against this, but when you start dealing with these people, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you know that. The racism in the country was certainly not just in the South. And these riots, you know, where Johnson ends up having to send the National Guard to Detroit, um, in Watts, in Los Angeles, it's just like huge fires that destroy whole parts of the city. Um, And this really shakes up a lot of people who had supported the Civil Rights Act or who were just kind of aloof from this and it really pushes up racism in the north and there starts being talk about how this this needs to there needs to be a stop a stop put to this and Johnson um, who has been putting together all this legislation to help poor and particularly poor people of color starts to face resistance from um, white people who are like born again racists or who just don't like the idea of a war on poverty anymore, if that war on poverty includes helping poor black people. Meanwhile, he's gone along with the generals and he's pushed the Vietnam War into the level of a real open, large conflict. The draft starts 
under uh, Lyndon Johnson. And his um, administration becomes associated with the fact that this war in Vietnam is killing thousands of people, and it's really starting to feel unclear as to why. It's about communism, but at this point, the Soviet Union is not viewed as this like really scary constant force. It's been under a series of premiers after Khrushchev who are more moderate. Um, there's no feeling that they're about to get nuked the way there was even under the Cuban Missile Crisis. But within the United States, there is still a hard line of people who, who believe, particularly within the military, that communism is this existential threat. And this idea called the domino theory, which says that if one country falls to communism, all countries will fall to communism, is really a trap that leads you to have to fight endless wars over pieces of territory that feel so far from the United States. Vietnam is an incredibly rural, jungle, rice paddy landscape. And, you know, thousands of Americans are being killed in conflict with not with an, a, like a giant military force, but with like villagers with guns, with this insurgent group called the Viet Cong, who um, you know, have been fighting for Vietnamese independence against the French, and now the Americans are just another form of it. Um, and so what's the justification of this? And even to get those, the draft going and the military in there, Johnson had to use this incident called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where it seems like an American ship was fired upon. Now, looking back, we don't even know that any shots were fired in the Gulf of Tonkin. But Johnson goes on television and gives a speech saying, we have now been fired on. And if you aren't seeing the pattern in history already, like here it is, like Americans will suddenly be willing to go to war once America is attacked. But compared to Pearl Harbor or even the blowing up of the Maine, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin incident is like a few shots Wait, that may or may Johnson not have been fired. No. Oh, Kennedy wanted to get out of Vietnam. Oh, I thought you said Johnson was suddenly like, wait, why are we in this war? That was me speaking about like Americans oh, in general. Oh. But actually, behind closed doors, very early on, we have recordings. And it started under Kennedy. They started having secret um, tape recordings inside the White House that were supposed to be like locked up. And then historians later would be able to listen to them. So for the whole Kennedy and Johnson and a couple more administrations, we get to hear these tapes. And so there's some incredible tape of Johnson talking to military advisors. And he says, in like 1964 or 1965, this is an unwinnable war. I don't even know why we're there. But if I try to pull out, they'll impeach me. Because he felt that he could not look weak on communism. You know, this is a guy who was in the Senate during McCarthyism and who probably had some of these weird feelings that your political power was based on your willingness to use force. Um, and so he continues to send thousands of Americans to their death in Vietnam. I mean, the other argument that was being made was always like, well, if all these people died already and then we just pull out, hasn't that just been a waste? And that the logic of that is uh, emotional and a real trap. Sunk cost. Sunk cost fa fallacy. So in these tapes, he admits that he's doing this for political reasons, basically. Even if those political reasons like impeachment seem insane, his motivation is, I have to prove that we're strong, and I won't be the president to lose the war that my two predecessors continued to fight. And I won't 
be the person who tells the military that they can't have the war that they want. There's also a America's never lost a war thing going on. And remember, his predecessor got in huge fights with the military and may have been assassinated by people who thought that he was too unwilling to use military force. So there's also a battle going on, at least within his mind, between his instincts and the instincts of the, to quote Eisenhower, military industrial complex. So you have a racial, um, they have, you have racial violence going on all across the country. You have a war going on in Vietnam where people are coming back in body bags from a conflict that no one even really understands. Um, And you now have a young generation of people who do not remember World War II, who were born in the Eisenhower administration, who say, this is all nuts and we're not going to go to war. And who also say, let's use drugs and have a lot of sex and listen to music. (laughs) (laughs) And... For the Eisenhower, John Draper, white male patriarchy generation, the hippies, who are not that big of a you know, percentage of the population, but who are very visible and who are also tied in with the civil rights movement in some ways by being closer to black people mm-hmm. and who, um, and of course there are black hippies, but it's primarily a movement of affluent white people mm-hmm. and for whom women which really in, in embracing sexual liberation also has the beginnings of a new wave of feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very threatening to the kind of old school power structure. And these people are against the Vietnam War. And they put on these dramatic protests and people are really angry about long hair, pot smoking, draft dodging young people um and lyndon johnson gets kind of caught in the middle of this he's a democrat um you know but he's responsible for so many of these things you know hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today um so this guy who wins this landslide election ends up being president in what i would call the craziest year of the 20th century 1968 and in 1968, there's um, a new presidential election. He's running. He's going to run for re-election. Sorry. And there's now a constitutional amendment since um, uh, FDR that sets it up so that this is the rule. You, you, if you serve, the most you can be president is 10 years. Like if you're vice president and there's less than half of the term left, then you can run for re-election. And Johnson says he's going to run for re-election, but he's really unpopular. Um, and 1968 is some of the worst racial violence in the country, and it's the height of the anti-war movement. Um, and um, Martin Luther King, the reason some of the worst racial violence happens that year is because Martin Luther King is assassinated. Um, and the hippies um, are staging this protest at the Pentagon. Um, and a lo- other groups of young people start getting involved with this Senator Eugene McCarthy, um, who says he's going to run against the president for the Democratic primary. And in New Hampshire, they go door to door and they shave off their beards and cut their hair and say they're going clean for Gene. And Eugene McCarthy's not that exciting of a guy, but he's an anti-war liberal Democrat. And Johnson ends up losing the New Hampshire primary while he's president. 
And so then he goes on television and announces while president that he's not going to run for re-election. Because if he lost the New Hampshire primary, it was so embarrassing, and he was also so unpopular, and he lost to Eugene McCarthy, and there were other people thinking about getting into the race. Mm-hmm. He was like, I, it's, I'm not going to win, so I'm pulling out. And he put his support behind his vice president, a guy named Hubert Humphrey, who was a pretty moderate Minnesota um, senator before, um, who was definitely not part of this kind of young people's movement, but who was like Lyndon Johnson, an anti-poverty, anti-racist, um, kind of old-school machine Democrat. Um, but the really exciting person who decides to run for president when Johnson drops out is Bobby Kennedy, the brother of the guy who everyone was so sad when he got shot. And Bobby Kennedy is uh, an incredibly idealistic guy who really was in touch with the feeling of that time. He was good at speaking to young people and being inspiring in the way that his brother was. He also was outspoken for African-Americans and really felt that something needed to change um, in, a, in a deeper way than I think a lot of white politicians of the previous era had. And he was young and good-looking in the same way. And, um, and then he is assassinated um, in Los Angeles. And there is just this feeling in 1968 that's like the world is coming apart. There's this war. People are being two of the most important political figures have just been killed. There's riots in all of the cities in the country. And uh, now this guy, oh, and at the, so then they go to the Democratic National Convention, which is held in Chicago, where the dead people got Kennedy elected last time. But now Kennedy's dead. Other, both Kennedys are dead. And it's like, and also the Kennedy assassination for the generation of people of our, like our parents' age, and especially those a little bit older, is like 9-11. It was like such a shocking event. People are, you know, really upset and questioning capitalism in a way that they haven't, like, you know, there are some really openly left-wing organizations that have come up in opposition to the Vietnam War, you know, um, Jane Fonda, and other celebrities are speaking out and saying that they're pro Ho Chi Minh, which is understandable. But for a generation that grew up like against Hitler, like whoever the U.S. is fighting is our enemy. And for there now to be young people who are openly having sex and using drugs and now saying, and we're on the side of the person that a bunch of people are being drafted to die for. And a bunch of people are fleeing to Canada or openly burning their draft cards. It's like... Who are we as a country? And it all comes to Chicago in 1968, where Eugene McCarthy is left and Hubert Humphrey is left. Kennedy's dead. His like voters are at the convention, and there ends up being the Democratic convention. The Democratic convention, yeah, which is in Chicago. Which remember, MLK calls the most racist city in America at the time. Also has this giant political machine that got Kennedy elected the first time, which is controlled by Richard Daley, who is like this white ethnic, like. M- machine politician type who has all these cops who are determined to maintain order. And at the convention, there are huge riots outside where um, construction workers with hard hats show up and start beating long-haired hippies with their um, construction hats. And then 
And of course the hippies are doing these crazy things with like wearing capes and like spreading like flowers and they're turning this into this like incredible political theater. Um, you know, there's the black power movement is really coming of age at this point, And you're seeing the beginnings of what will be the Black Panthers, which is a generation of civil rights activists who are much more willing to be confrontational about demanding their rights. And people who are watching this on TV are like, what is happening? Who should, my mom remembers this convention as her, mo her mom was feeling, was siding with the protesters and her dad was siding with the cops because the cops then come out and beat the shit out of all these protesters. Um, Hubert Humphrey ends up getting nominated, but people are really disillusioned. Um, and Humphrey runs against Richard Nixon, who um, is back from the political dead. Remember the last time he ran was like eight years earlier and he hasn't really had a job um, for most of this time. Um, but there's an extent to which he reminds, he, has, he does two things. One, he reminds people of this Eisenhower era and he says, it's time for us to go back to that. And he talks about law and order, mm -hmm. which to some is about all of this madness needs to stop. To others, it's about um, getting black people back under control. And the other thing he talks a lot about is states' rights. And states' rights is a phrase that was used before the Civil War to signify the right of the Confederacy to hold on to its slaves. And now states' rights is a coded language that's about the Civil Rights Act and that's about telling the South, I'm on your side, white people. And this is called the Southern strategy. And Nixon defeats Humphrey in actually a very close election. Um, mm -hmm. If Bobby Kennedy had lived, he might have defeated Nixon. But uh, Hubert Humphrey wasn't able to, to win.